Let's go to God once more in prayer before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in prayer. Before we come to your word, because we want to hear from you. So we need your spirit's help, and we ask that he would give us that help that only he can give, that he would give us eyes to see, ears that hear, and hearts that are receptive to your word. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody knows what happens when you find a magic genie in a lamp. The origin of that story goes back thousands and thousands of years. Because people have always found a fascination with having access to power that helps give them the life they want. Even today, it's easy for us to encounter that story and imagine what we would do with our three wishes. But has that ever stressed you out? Only three wishes? Pressure, right? You've got to get that right. Only three. I think we instinctively feel, based on our own experience, the need for that genie to hang around indefinitely. Because there's always a new need, a new desire that's coming up around the corner. And therefore, so is a wish. Another request to be made. Do you ever find yourself asking repeatedly, why can't I have? Or, how come I never? Sometimes we don't verbalize those needs and desires, but we might ask the same question through a persistent daydream. Or maybe a reoccurring complaint or rant. We all have unfulfilled desires. And it's quite natural to believe that those unfulfilled desires are robbing us of happiness. So what are yours? Where, to what, to whom are you looking for life? In our text today, Jesus meets a woman who's more like us than we realize. And she's been looking. So please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 944. 944, if you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. Smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now, for context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the one that God promised would come and deliver his people and rule over them forever. So when Jesus shows up in chapter 1 and 2, John's disciples become Jesus' disciples. And they, too, testify that Jesus is the Messiah. And then Jesus demonstrates that truth through miracles. And then beginning in chapter 3, Jesus explains how people can see The kingdom of God. They must be born again. That is, by the Spirit. 
And this comes about through faith in God's one and only Son. And so whoever believes in Him has eternal life. That truth is on full display in Jesus' next encounter here in chapter 4. Eternal life really is offered to everyone who believes. And here's the main takeaway for us this morning. Seek the life you really need and want in the gift of God. Seek the life you really need and want in the gift of God. And as we'll see, this comes through Jesus. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, we're going to see this in two parts. First, the source of true life. Verses 1 through 15, the source of true life. And second, the gift of true worship. The gift of true worship. Verses 16 through 26. So first, the source of true life. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now these verses are simply setting the scene For Jesus' next encounter. To avoid a premature confrontation with the Pharisees, he's heading north to Galilee, and that leads him through Samaria, land of Jewish half-breeds. You see, there's a strong Jewish prejudice against Samaritans that goes far, far back into their history. When David conquered the land of Israel, he made Jerusalem the capital. But then when Israel divided into two nations, Samaria became the capital of the northern nation. And when the northern nation was conquered by Assyria, Samaria became a mixed race of people. And so did their religion. They ended up throwing out most of the Old Testament, including anything that said anything about Jerusalem. And so the roots of hatred run deep into history, culture, and religion. Jews want nothing to do with Samaritans. But Jesus is passing through there. And it's no accident he comes to Sychar. Because it's a very significant place due to the fact that Jacob's well is there. And we're almost certain of its location today, actually. And what's interesting is that John uses the word for a running spring in verse 6. And a dug, or a dugout well in verse 11 and 12. So Jacob's well is both. And that's what we see in the the place that we know as Jacob's well today. It is a running spring of water where a, a dugout well has been placed. And it's still supplying water to this day. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sits down at that well at the hottest point in the day, about noon. And then verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her. Because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? 
she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, it's hard to feel the intensity of this passage through modern ears and eyes. But it's highly unusual for a woman to visit a well alone. Women would normally come as a group early in the morning when it's cool to gather enough water for for drinking and for household chores the rest of the day. But she comes all alone at the hottest part of the day. It's a clear sign that she's a social outcast. Not even the women want to associate with her. It's like she's got this scarlet letter painted on her chest. And there's little doubt reading ahead that this has something to do with at least one of her many lovers, if not the combination of them all. And yet Jesus doesn't ignore her, but initiates a conversation with her, which should make us think of his last encounter, which couldn't have been more different, right? Nicodemus, in just the chapter before this, came to Jesus and we got this conversation that happened. And Nicodemus was well-educated, powerful and respected in his community, orthodox and theologically trained. As a Samaritan woman, she's never been taught to read. She's without influence, despised, and a kind of religious mutt. He's a man, a a Jew, a ruler. She's a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. Both need Jesus. Couldn't be more different and the same. But Nicodemus came at night intending to meet Jesus. She comes during the day surprised by Jesus. Verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. She tells us everything that John wants us to see about the situation. What Jesus just did was unheard of. She's a Samaritan and a woman. Jewish rabbis avoided conversations with all women, period. And all Jews refused to share the same eating or drinking utensils with any Samaritan. Because Samaritans were considered unclean. These are spiritually dirty people. Making someone unfit to worship God in the temple if they were to eat or drink after them. But Jesus isn't put off by this woman for any reason. Asking her for a drink is a sign of acceptance beyond mere words. When you come to Jesus, I hope you can see that worldly distinctions don't matter. His love right here crosses the infinite gap between God's holiness and sin. And that love shows up in those who know him, those who are dwelled with the Spirit, wherever his presence is. Almost every place on earth is going to have a majority culture of some kind. That's, that's not only hard to avoid, but it's what makes culture possible. It's, it's places of a, of a certain kind of people that, that makes for a culture. But part of the power of the gospel is displayed in different kinds of people coming together because of Jesus. Through faith in Christ, we have a spirit, and he's brought us together into one body in love. And so the differences that the world would use to judge one another by and usually divide us, like we see in the text here, don't have that same effect on those in Christ. Instead, the power of God's grace and love is displayed through these social barriers that we all know about being torn down 
on a gospel basis. So let me just say, if you're here this, this morning and in some way you feel different than whatever the majority culture at Grace Harbor may be at any time, whether that's because of your ethnicity or age or personality, work, education, or something else, I just want to say whatever that difference is, is valued here. That diversity of the body is good for gospel ministry. It's good for Christians. It's it's good for our sanctification. When, When the church is a home for every kind of sinner or a refuge for every kind of outcast, even if that outcast is just socially awkward, then it becomes a place where we see evidence of God's grace. Our unity with one another testifies to Jesus' presence with us, where otherwise we might be divided. Now, that's clearly always a challenge for sinners. But in Ephesians 3.10, Paul says it's a clear evidence for God's grace. That's the real reason Jesus asks this woman for a drink. It's so that he can offer her grace. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This woman came to the well for water, but Jesus sees a spiritually parched soul. And so he tells her, you're not asking the right question. And she's asking, how how are you asking me for a drink? And he says, no, the right question if you, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who's saying to you, give me a drink, would be to ask him for water, and he would give you living water. Now, living water actually has a double meaning here. At a purely physical level, it's how people would refer to spring water back then. So stagnant water, like, a, like in a pond or puddle, was contaminated water. You can't drink that. It's, it's moving water, living water, that's good for drinking. And remember, that's actually what Jacob's well is. It's a, it's a spring water. It's living water. But Jesus is obviously referring to something greater than that. Because whatever living water is that he's talking about isn't what she's got in that well. Jesus is pulling this metaphor straight out of the Old Testament where God declares in Jeremiah 2.13 that he is the spring of living water. And yet his people have rejected his goodness and faithfulness. They've turned to cracked cisterns stagnant water and things that they've created and now they're leaking water still because of God's faithful love Ezekiel 47 it looks forward to a time when living water would actually flow out of Jerusalem and the promise about water from Ezekiel 36 that Jesus spoke with Nicodemus about is the transforming power of God's spirit which would bring them into loving fellowship with God Jesus is offering this Samaritan woman the life-giving water of God himself. Eternal life and joy with him. And you see Jesus' willingness here. He sees her true need. 
her true desires and tells her, ask me for it and I will give it. Ask me, I will. But it's not ask for anything. Jesus doesn't pretend to be a genie. He doesn't want to be a genie. He isn't willing to give her yet another cracked cistern to drink from as she has been. He wants to give her living water. You know how many prayers of ours can can actually treat God like he's a genie? And when we ask him for things that we think we need or think we want, we then wonder, why isn't God answering my prayers? We believe they're good desires, and sometimes they are good desires. They're good things, like, like water. And yet he doesn't answer. Why? Well, maybe it's because God desires to give us something better. To fulfill even greater needs, which every request that we make is actually pointing to, even if we don't know it. This Samaritan woman's obviously there because she wants water. That's a good desire. It's certainly a need. And Jesus says, ask me for it, and I'll give you life. And, and don't miss the fact that he's telling this to a Samaritan woman. This is not someone who expects... God to be willing necessarily, or even looking for it from God. Which is really good news for our prayers. You know, sometimes I think not knowing what we should ask for keeps us from praying altogether. But I think part of what we see here is that we shouldn't worry about that. We should just ask. Just ask for what you desire. Ask for what you need. And Jesus will give you what you really are asking for. Maybe it's a specific answer to your prayer. Maybe that is it, and he wants you to ask him for it. But maybe not. Jesus tells the woman, you'd ask me for something physical, and I'd give you the greater version of that thing. It's so helpful to see Jesus this way, especially as sinners. Is that God in his gracious love would hear our requests like this? He doesn't chide her for the wrong thing upon request. But knowing her and what she really needs, it's like he's on his seat just wanting to give it to her. Just ask me. It's kind of like someone asking for money on the street and somebody going, I've been waiting to give you a job. Or maybe you're asking for a spouse because you're lonely. But instead, God continues to withhold that because he wants to give you more of himself. Because he knows that right now your heart is such that a spouse would get in the way. They'd be everything to you and you'd end up being disappointed. So he uses the struggle of loneliness to have you keep coming to him, asking for help that he might draw you into his presence which is far, far better than any other sinner. You can apply this to anything you're going through this morning. Maybe it's a job or money. You can be sure that God will provide. But he might do that in ways you're not asking. Ways that will truly benefit you as you learn to trust him. Are you praying for health? For peace? Are you praying for direction? Keep praying. Keep praying because he hears. And he hears better than you know how to ask. Because he knows you better than you know yourself. So just pray. 
Especially pray what he tells you to pray in his word. Sort of like Jesus telling this woman what to pray. God tells us. But even when you don't know, come to him with all your cares, whatever you think you need, because he delights to answer. Our prayers don't have to be perfect to be perfectly answered. But she doesn't ask. Because she doesn't know who Jesus is and the gift of God. In fact, the part of scripture that Jesus is pulling from right now with this Samaritan woman is the part that Samaritans throw out. They only use the Pentateuch. This is coming from the prophets. And yet, that doesn't stop Jesus from telling her the good news from Scripture. I think that can be helpful in our evangelism. Still, she's got questions. Can you offer something better than our father Jacob? You know, he found this well, and it's lasted for thousands of years. This thing is as good as a well as you're ever going to find. Jacob, his sons, his animals, and his descendants have been drinking from this spot all the way up until this day. And then look at her question in verse 12. That question leads us to the heart of John's gospel. Are you greater than our father Jacob? In other words, can you provide something better? And Jesus says, yes, Verse 13, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. This is what John wants us to believe. This is why he's written the book, is that we might have eternal life through believing him. And the Samaritan woman is being offered this eternal life. Everyone who believes can have it. So Jesus answers, not denying that water is good, that this is a great well, I mean it's lasted. But he says, people who come to this well have to keep coming back for more. And that's clearly her deeper problem. One guy after the next, she must have believed and hoped. This time it'll be different. This time I'll be satisfied. This is what I need. For life. Have you ever found yourself thinking that way? Maybe even about sin? Maybe even just one more time that will be enough regarding sin. Or maybe you've thought that way about something good. But listen, nothing in this world ultimately satisfies. So do yourself some good here and get over it. Nothing in this world will ultimately satisfy you. Yet without knowing the gift of God in Jesus, we'll keep looking. We're going to keep looking. We can't help it. We are pleasure seekers because we're worshipers by nature. God has made us to know Him and enjoy Him. But apart from Him, our carnal hearts will always look to carnal ends for life. In other words, it's all about what we can see, what we can feel or taste with these physical bodies. That's as far as life goes for us. 
And yet what we have is a spiritual and eternal desire within us to know God and enjoy Him. 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 That we look to in this world ultimately will ever satisfy. And in some ways, these temporary pleasures can only make it worse. They, They keep us believing the lie. That we only need more of this thing that just gave me temporary satisfaction. If I just had more of it, I'd be happy. And so we're we're back to searching. Building up a tolerance to pleasure. Needing more and more. Apart from faith and thanksgiving towards God, drinking in worldly success and pleasures can be a lot like drinking salt water when you're dying of thirst. It's water... Yes, but it's actually making things worse. That's what sin does with the good gifts of this world. All the fighting that we see, the greed, the longings, brokenness and anger over what's taken from us or what we don't have, all of that is just a thirsty world drinking up all they can, trying to take care of the spiritual drought of their own hearts. For many people, maybe a ten to $20,000 debt forgiveness sounds like it will change their life. For others, it's just a start. Still for others, it's just a sign they need a, a new government to be happy. For most, it's many things altogether. It's a, a job, a, a house, a spouse, good health, more wealth, less war. But you know, some people have all these things. And like a fire, they're never really satisfied. It will keep on burning as long as there's something to burn. That's the heart of flesh. Always looking to finite sources to be satisfied. And eventually, that resource is used up. The human heart was created to drink deeply. From the, content, from the continuous source of life. And anything we look for in this world is simply just a finite resource that eventually runs dry. And tragically, it can take a, life, a whole lifetime to learn that lesson. You hear of people who have pursued fulfillment in life through companionship, work, success, praise, pleasure, only to come and realize on their deathbed that it was not enough. If you're a student here of any kind, so young enough that you can see the whole, your whole life ahead of you, right? Please, don't be so naive or prideful to think that it'll be different for you. When you're young and the life, your whole life's ahead of you, it's tempting to think that you may find that perfect person that will complete you with their love and fulfill every desire that you have for intimacy. And that you'll find that perfect job that will fulfill you in your work. And at the same time, live in that perfect place that has all the things that you enjoy and need to be satisfied. But can't you see that what I just described is heaven? That's what we all really want. But we think we're going to find it here in this world. C.S. Lewis famously wrote in Mere Christianity... That creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. 
Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, only Jesus can quench that desire. Because the water he gives becomes a well on the inside. It bubbles up for eternal life. That's why you'll never thirst again with this water. Because you drink from it, and it turns into an everlasting fountain, always inside you, helping you taste the kingdom of God. Fellowship with Him. I mean, doesn't this sound like the conversation with Nicodemus a bit? Like being born of water and the Spirit? You know, later in chapter 7, Jesus will identify living water with the Holy Spirit. And in John's other book, Revelation, chapter 22, he says, In the new creation, a river of life flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This living water signifies life with God. It's the true life we're after, and it comes through God's Spirit that He gives. And He gives it to everyone who believes. The gift of God's Spirit is the beginning of eternal life with Him. It can begin today if you put your trust in Jesus. But why then do Christians who have this spirit still fall into temptation and give in to sin time and time again? Why do we go back to these cracked cisterns that we know are cracked? Well, the reality is is that we still live in the body of flesh. It's still affected by sin. And so Paul says that the members of our body are waging war with the spirit within us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always pulling us away from drinking from the fountain of life. It's easy for sinners like us to fall into bad habits where we would neglect the word and prayer. Or the assembling of ourselves together like this. And suddenly, dirty cesspools of sin start to look like they'll quench our thirst. And so life's a battle of faith and repentance. Thankfully, God's Spirit within us speaks. And He convicts. And He turns us back to Christ the fountain. And that's what Jesus is trying to do for this woman here. She doesn't fully understand what this water is yet, but it's clear, based on what Jesus is saying, she wants it. Verse 15. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. She wants this gift. But just based on the way that she makes this request, I wonder that if if part of what's behind this request is a hatred for that well. I don't want to come here anymore. Even if no one else sees her there, it's a daily reminder of her shame. and She's all alone. Give me this water so that I don't have to come here and draw water. If you're here and you're not a Christian... I don't know how you feel or think about yourself, but we want you to know we're glad you're here. 
Maybe you're someone who identifies more with Nicodemus and you feel like you've, you've done everything you need to do to be accepted by God. You're, you're proud of the person you are. Well, you still need to be born again, both by water and the Spirit, or you cannot see the kingdom of God. You need Jesus just as much as this woman. But maybe you're here this morning and you identify with this woman. There's sin in your life that you're ashamed of, And it's hard to come into a church like this because of it. Maybe you don't know what sin is, but but you hurt. And and you can't imagine God's love for you. I hope you can see this encounter here between Jesus and the woman. And know that he is willing to offer life-giving water of the Spirit to everyone who believes. No matter who they are or where they're currently at. And yet, it's also important to see that to enjoy life with God, you've got to leave your current well. Whatever it is that you're currently drinking from and seeking life, you need to leave it and drink from Him. Which brings us to the second point, the last point, the gift of true worship. The gift of true worship. Look at verse 16. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. It's a bit shocking, isn't it? Especially everything, after everything else that they've just talked about. And can you imagine how this woman would have felt if you, know, if you were her? Uh, this, this, this stranger you've just met has revealed the part of you you've been trying to hide. The parts of you that you're ashamed of. Uh, Jesus just, just pulls it out, just met you. But it's because he knows her and he sees what she's been doing. And he sees how empty she is. And he wants her to declare spiritual bankruptcy and stop trying to seek her life and happiness in this world. Five times she's been married. And we know how this would work, right? No doubt she's thought each time, this is what I need, this is what I want, this one will make me happy, and this one will last. At least I hope so. But each time they don't, and now she's living with someone who's not even her husband. Why? Why is she doing this? Well, not because she wants to be sinful. There's nothing here that suggests that there's something malicious about her. She's no different than any other sinner in this room. She simply wants to be happy. I mean, who can't feel compassion for her? And amazingly, Jesus, who's perfect and without sin, is the most gracious and compassionate man she's ever met. More compassionate and gracious than the other women she knows, even her own husbands, no doubt. In love, he points out the hard truth. Jesus wants her to see that where she's been seeking life. That's why he says, go find your husband. It seems like an out-of-bounds response. It feels abrupt and disconnected in the text from what just happened in verse 15. But he's actually doing what she asked. He's leading her to living water. Because the first step towards Christ is knowing your need of him. And so he goes straight to the well that she's been seeking to draw water from. Not Jacob's well, 
but the one she's been depending on for life. Whether it's been for very practical reasons, emotional reasons, or something else, this woman has gone from man to man to man for some reason. And that reason has built up a moral dam in her heart. Keeping God out of her life through unrepentant sin. She's living in sexual immorality. Now, Jesus doesn't use those words, but that's clearly implied by her living with another man who's not her husband. So, this isn't exactly the response she expected, especially after Jesus so strongly suggested, if you'll ask me, I'll give it to you. She says, okay, give it to me. Go get your husband. But again, there's a valuable lesson here, especially regarding our prayers and the way that God works. She's asking for the right thing this time, and she's going to get it, but the way it comes is hard. And Christian, that's sometimes the Christian life. You just need to know it. If you ask for humility, God will likely lead you through an experience of your weakness, maybe showing you your sin or leading you through a trial in which you become totally dependent on him for help. No one wants to live there, but you learn humility in valleys like that. And when you come out on the other side... Christians tend to thank God and say, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Seeking real life means seeking God, and that often comes through the painful experience of losing the world. It might feel like a kind of death to us, because it means dying to something that you thought would make you happy, or dying to something that you found your identity in. It doesn't feel good to be honest with yourself as a sinner. Or to see the foolishness of your sin. But listen, it's the first step towards finding living water. In a sense, you have to know you're thirsty and start feeling thirsty before you come to Jesus. You'll never know and enjoy God through faith until you see that you've been drinking out of your own broken cistern in rebellion against him. But then again, look at the text, the the clearest example that that eternal life is offered to everyone who believes can be seen right here in the fact that a self-conscious sinner is more likely to come to Jesus than someone who's self-righteous. She has to know she's a sinner before she's going to get it. Jesus said that anyone who wants to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life will save it. Christianity really is a kind of death-to-self religion. We die in order to live. That's why being a part of a church is so helpful. This is a place where we've kind of agreed to to covenant with one another and say, let's die together. Let's, Let's die to the world. And as we challenge one another persisting in sin and pointing one another to go to the cross, we're just saying, hey, die to sin. Live to Christ. And this woman is nearly ready to follow Jesus. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place of worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. So, she hid the truth about herself. 
But now we can see that Jesus makes it known in order to make himself known. Already she knows she's somehow hearing from God through him. Sir, I see that you're a prophet. And that's really interesting because Jesus has just said some hard things. I think we'd rightly understand if after hearing this, she might be offended and hurt and just leave. And I think we're rightly concerned about doing the same thing in our own evangelism. But notice Jesus has already revealed in his heart, I'm willing to associate with you. She's safe with Jesus. And yet still, you can feel her angst in the text. It's like she's, she's been living with her sin, and now it's right in front of her, in front of the, with, this, with this person. And she doesn't know what to do about it. Sir, I can see you're a prophet. You, you can see my stuff. I know I need help, but I don't know what to do. Our ancestors say it's important for us to worship here. You Jews say it's important to worship in Jerusalem. Which is it? Which is right? What does God want from me? That, that's really the question here. Yes, we could talk about how a a rival temple was set up in Samaria a a long time ago. And Jesus does side with the Jews in Jerusalem in terms of the temple. Because God has worked through them to bring about salvation. But, But we don't need to get distracted with these mountains. Look at the heart issue and the state of the, this woman. In, in her, her, her recognition of her sin and her recognition needs life beyond these men, she's looking for religion. These guys aren't doing it. And so she looks to Jesus and says, tell me what I should do. What should my religious worship look like? And Jesus says, the place doesn't matter. Verse 23, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. You see, just as God is love or God is light, another way to describe God is to say that God is spirit. In other words, God isn't a material being. He's spirit. This is one of the reasons why Israel was forbidden to cast God into a form of anything. It's why we shouldn't worship physical things. Anything physical is a creation of God. It's a, it might be a gift from God to enjoy life uh, for his glory, but the gift from God isn't God. And so we shouldn't serve it and, and praise it as if that thing can give us life. Jesus is connecting God's nature with the worshipers themselves. God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit. And that's not to say that what we do physically doesn't matter, as if that's not part of our spiritual worship. Uh, It's not true. How you live in this world as a person created in God's image is an act of worship. But doing the right thing isn't enough. Worship isn't just a physical act in which you can just go through the motions. Now, just like his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is getting to her very person, to her heart. And he says, that part of you must worship. You see, the great human problem is that we're born into this world under the curse of sin. And it affects us physically and spiritually. It cuts us off from the God of life. And so even though we live, we're spiritually dead. Meaning we refuse to acknowledge God with our lives. We don't give him thanks. Our spiritual state is one in which we think and feel in ways that are contrary to God. And so if we're going to worship him rightly, it must be in spirit and in truth. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again. We need to be made new. 
And only the Spirit can do that. And when He does do that, the place doesn't make a difference. True worshipers become the very dwelling place of God. Being made new, they can worship God in spirit. Now, maybe that's a hard concept for you to grasp. So, perhaps think about the different ways that people approach their work. On the one hand, it matters that you do the work that you're called to do and do it well. But at the end of the day, it might just be about getting a paycheck. But then there's work that we do and we do it well because we love it. There's an aspect of our work that makes us feel alive. It's enjoyed. Our hearts are in it. God wants worshipers like that. Not just people who do the right thing, but who do it for him with joy in their hearts, as if they're alive to him. But that only happens in connection with the truth. You can't worship in spirit apart from the truth. Okay, You, you can feel alive sometimes in your sin, at least temporarily, or any other false form of worship. Uh, even in the kind that happens in churches, where the service is all about the people there. But true worship isn't about us. It isn't about what we want to hear or what we want to think or feel. Worship is about making much of God and seeking our life in Him and therefore hearing and thinking and feeling the way that He wants us to feel. And only His Spirit can do that. And sometimes to get there, it's required that we be corrected, that we make a change. And true worshipers welcome that for our good. Our worship needs to be based on the truth of God's word, conforming our thoughts and feelings to his. Life is worship. But it's either true or false based on what God sees. And he sees what's happening in us. So think about Monday through Saturday. And be honest with yourself about your worship. Where do you normally seek life? What are you pursuing throughout the week? What does your life say, this is a great thing? This is what I'm all about. And think about Sunday. How do you come into the church and gather here? Are you just going through the motions this morning? Is the church you go to all about you? Or are you consumed with thoughts about God? Do you come here with desires to give Him praise? When it comes to worship, whether it's in your life or in the church, it's easy for us to judge how good things are based on how we feel and how the way things look. But you can be healthy and wealthy and spiritually dead and rebellious. And just because the church service is lively doesn't mean it's good. And just because it's formal doesn't mean it's dead. God sees what matters. It's engaged hearts and minds. Not the motions, not the place, but the content and substance of the worship. Right worship combined with right hearts. So when someone's leading and praying, we're praying with them. When we're singing, the sound coming from the instruments in our lips doesn't matter nearly as much as the content of what we're singing And what's going on in our hearts. When the word is being read or preached. It's not enough to be present. But seeking to give God your attention. 
and wanting to respond to that word with your life each day of the week from your heart. So if if you're here saying, I'm just going through the motions, well, I'd say don't stay home. (laughs) Keep coming because it matters that you come. But pray and get your heart right so that your spirit connects with the truth of God's word here. Because the Father wants such people. And he's talking to this woman as if she's among such people. Isn't that good news for us? The Father desires worship even from people that no one else wants to be around. People who are ashamed of their sin. Who are hiding from others. God says, don't hide from me. I want such people to worship me in spirit and in truth. That's what brings him glory. But for sinners to see that, they need to see the truth about Jesus. True worship comes through faith in him. Look at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Again, here's this Samaritan woman with a sinful past that most people, especially in her day, would be ashamed of and try to hide. Yet Jesus reveals himself to her. We haven't even read of him personally testifying in this way to his disciples at this point. But he's speaking to this woman, and he wants her to know the gift of God that's being offered to her. And he wants her to ask for it and to receive it. And so he's led her in this conversation ultimately to himself. I think evangelism can look like a lot of different things in in every conversation, but it always leads people to Jesus. And she went from seeing her sin and her great need for God to, I need the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're speaking to him. Literally, it says, ego I me. I am the one speaking to you. And even a Samaritan with just the first five books of the Bible knows what those two words mean. I am. That's how God identifies himself. And suddenly, in the next verses, she's running off to town wanting everyone to know about Jesus. This woman who just came to the well alone in order to hide from public shame is suddenly running to the town where everyone is so that they can find life. This man who initiated a conversation with her, who knew all of her sin, offers her living water and then identifies himself as God. Jesus can give us God. And that changes everything. There's no need for another ask. Seek all that you really need and want in God through faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the life that you offer with yourself. And Lord, we pray that we would increasingly know that joy and give you glory through the fellowship we have with your Holy Spirit. 
So bless us this way, in Jesus' name, amen.